All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How are you, my friend? Doing great. How about yourself? All right, all right. Mary Goulet is out doing her fun work in the world. Actually, I think no, now that I'm... She's, she's, she's not, I was going to say, she's actually, now that I'm thinking about it, she's having fun. <laughs> she's on the beach in Puerto Vallarta doing her thing. Wade's holding it down in the studio. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million. And we get to the bottom of exactly how they got to where they are. And uh, today's conversation will be very interesting for a number of different reasons and uh not the least of which is we've got uh do, so, do, so do we do are you like do we have to do all three names here man or, or do we just do like just do, do we just call you aaron or, or what, what do we do here you can call me aaron uh, you know what it is is there's this jazz musician named aaron young who gotcha. owns everything aaron young <laughs> so i had to put the middle name in there so i could own my space so aaron scott young yes that's what, that's what we have to do there. Yeah, all right, good. That's the only time we have to do it the entire time. All right, I got gotcha. you. So Aaron Young <laughs> hanging out with us here today on Beyond Eight Figures. Uh, let's get this out of the way early as we always do here on the show. Uh, how do you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures? Do you currently run a business that grosses more than $10 million annually, or did you exit for more than $10 million with the business or both? No, run, not, no, never exited on... Um, not any private companies that I've I've been um, a senior person in a company that's gone public and made a boatload of money, but gotcha. I don't count that the same as being entrepreneurial and coming up with it myself. I got it. But um, I, I run several companies now that are that are um, seven or eight figures, uh, and Laughlin Associates is and the and the subsidiaries of Laughlin are, I guess, how we'd make the criteria yeah. this. The thing that I want to, that I would actually say out loud right now would be that one. Would be that one. <laughs> <laughs> so are you more, are you more excited about some of the opportunities, uh, some of the other things that you're working on? We're doing a, so I, and we can talk about whatever you want, but I, yeah. um, I, do, I do something called the unshackled owner that started out as a, we really just started out as a course. A bunch of people asked me how I'd built up over a dozen multi-million dollar companies and I never seemed to go to work and how did I do it? And so for the first time in my life, three years ago, I, I taught a course of my own philosophies, which I just had never done. And it um, has grown into kind of by accident. It's, it's now up over a million dollars and it keeps getting new little legs on it. So I really fully expect over the next several years, we'll be up somewhere in that five to $10 million range. It's hard to tell, but the way things are unfolding it, it could easily hit eight figures. Um, it really, at this point in my life, Steve, it has to do with how much I want to be involved with building new stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I totally, totally get that. And so let, let, let's do this. Let's, let's talk about, uh, Laughlin first, and then I, I want to see if we can't back into some of the other things that you've been able to to accomplish over the course of, of your career. So, what what is Laughlin and Associates for those that are unfamiliar with it? We're um, so I bought the company 
uh, along with a business partner 18 years ago, 2001. Uh, it is the old dog. It's the original Nevada Incorporation service. It, um, uh, it had only been Nevada for a long time. And then when we took it over, it became, we went all 50 states and we expanded. And so now we serve close to 50,000 active customers mm -hmm. right now that, that pay us anywhere from 150 to $25,000 a year to do different things for them. Okay. I got you. And, and just so we're clear on this. So when you, when you acquired the company, it was an existing entity. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's yeah. Like, yeah. yeah and, it was 29 years old, I think when we bought it. Gotcha. And what was the company doing in revenue when you acquired it and what is it doing now? So let me say this. I don't talk very specifically, but I'll tell you, we meet your criteria. Um, <laughs> so what was it doing when you bought it? How about that? <laughs> when I bought it, there was no money to make payroll. They were, they were maybe doing, um, they might've been doing 200 or $2 million a year in revenue, but they were $3 million in debt. Oh, um, they had preferred shareholders. They had off books debt. Um, so by the time we came in and, and, paid for the opportunity to take on the debt. Uh, we also had 300% turnover back in those days that we were inheriting. We had, there were about 80 employees and we went in and cut about 30 of them the first week, mm. including all but one of the senior management team. And, um, and we went about rebuilding just like we've done a bunch of other times. When I bought Laughlin, I bought it because we already had five other companies in this in the incorporation space. And when Mr. Laughlin died unexpectedly at 34 years old, oh, wow. he was the, the son of the founder. The dad had died. Son was running it. He was, um, well, we won't go into what was, what the cause of death was, but he, he was, um, he was, his body was under a lot of pressure and um, he passed away in his sleep, 34 years old. And the trust lawyer who already knew me um, called and said, are you interested in buying the company? Mm, interesting. And, and so we came into a, a mess. Yeah, a it sounds mess. like it. So did you actually have to come out of pocket then? Or were you, oh, yeah. you did have to come out of pocket? Oh. Even though they were underwater, you still had to come out of pocket. Yeah, about a million dollars out of pocket. About a million bucks. We had to come in and get, we had to update all the licenses for all the software, replace all the furniture, upgrade all the computers. I mean, um, pay out, there were almost two, well, what were there? I guess about 18, 17, 18 lawsuits going on. Mm. Either we were being sued or we were suing clients. It was just a mess. Sounds like it. And, and so <laughs> we, um, People think we paid a lot for the company. Uh, we didn't pay out of pocket a lot, but we paid compared to other things I've done. But we did pay a lot out of pocket to just wrangle the the uh, the Mustangs. Yeah. I, have a, I have a question: Is you've been doing this for a while? It sounds like you've done this with many companies. What made you? want to take on this when it sounds like it was such a mess like there's tons of tons of opportunities out there why why this one? great yeah it's an excellent question um we were already in the industry and we were we were doing well and 
I knew that Laughlin was like the oldest company and I figured they had a big database. My intention, and, and also they wouldn't let us interview anybody. They wouldn't let us come in and talk to any of the team. So my going in that day, August, I think it was August 21st, 2001, something like that it was third week of August was my intention was to terminate everybody. That was the plan. Yeah. Get rid of everybody, get out from under the lease, get out from the mess, merge our other stuff into the, the 29 year old company and begin servicing the, um, the database in what I thought would maybe be a more effective way. That was the goal. But then we got in and started interviewing the people and I thought, Oh my gosh, there's a lot of talent here. They've just had horrible management. The senior, the, the, the um, culture was just broken. And so I, I realized there was an opportunity to fix the culture. And we, what we ended up was doing the opposite of what I thought. We either sold or merged into Laughlin, the other, several other companies. And I heard the tone in there that the database might not as big as, been as big as you thought, was it? Or No, it was, it was about what I thought. It was, um, <laughs> it remains not as, as segregated as many people would love. You know, when they come to us and they say, well, you know, how many um, dentists do you have and how many landscape architects and how many automobile repair? And it's like, nah, you don't understand. We don't, we know who we market to and we have anecdotal evidence, but if you guys came and said, can you set up an LLC for us? We would do it, but then we wouldn't be checking up on you with what you're doing with the LLC. Mm -hmm. So we don't have, um, at a high level, we don't have tremendous knowledge about the customers, which means we had to figure out another way to become more meaningful to the customer. So through, a couple, one in particular, one of our products or one of our services gives us very intimate connection with the client. I, it, and we can talk about that, but it, the, um, the main thing is, is through some of our services, we've gained deeper insights into the customer's needs and those end up being our best customers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. So I'm not only the, uh, the interviewer and, and you're an interviewer here, um, Richie, I, I am also a client, oh, so I didn't Bosley uh, Hair Club. Like I know exactly, like Bosley. <laughs> I'm not only an interviewer here; I'm also a client of Loft. Like I didn't even realize this until we started chatting here just a little bit further down. And I was like, "Wait a minute, that name sounds so like I had known it, but then it didn't click." We um, we actually used you way back. When. Does, De does Debbie Cook still work for you? Is she still around? Uh -huh. Oh, you bet. Debbie's great. Debbie's oh, Debbie's yeah. one of the ones that stayed. All right, good. <laughs> oh, Deb, well, Debbie is a new hire. This, remember, this is going back 18 years. Yeah, ago. yeah, I got you. No, this is Debbie's going back to 2016. The... 2016 is when we uh, when we used you guys. Well, so that's I funny. think I met you. I met you, Steve, at somebody else's <laughs> event, and we were outside at a lunch table off this weird side door. Yeah, and your your book. Um, what had is your just what? come out. What is your what? So that and I, like yeah, what is your what? Okay. And I bought like eight or ten copies of it That's from awesome. you to give out to certain people on the team. Sweet. Thank you for that. Yeah, so thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. No, it was interesting because I was like, man, I just, I, I couldn't place it. And then I went back and um, I had a, a partnership gone wrong with a guy by the name of Alex Mondosian. 
and uh, and we I, know, I remember Alex and we uh, we we did a, a little something together called Push Button Influence, and okay. uh, and Debbie helped us get set up in Wyoming. Why did we choose Wyoming? Why why would we have chosen Wyoming? Wyoming and Nevada have almost the same kind of legislation, and Wyoming is a um, hundred dollars per year versus about six hundred dollars per year. So sometimes people will choose Wyoming over Nevada. As a matter of fact, my VP of sales just got on my case a couple of days ago because we just did our three-day event um, last week called Magnify Your Wealth. And and I was talking about why would you choose Nevada over Wyoming when Wyoming is 20% the cost. And my answer, and this is what makes my sales team angry with me, because they sell, they said we sell a lot of Wyoming. I said, okay, but we sell it for asset protection reasons. Mm-hmm. It's not because you need to be in Wyoming if you don't live in Wyoming. You did it for you use Wyoming or Nevada usually for a strategic reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I said was, it's cheaper to be in Wyoming. But if you actually got into a lawsuit or some kind of a problem, where do you think the deeper bench of lawyers is going to be, Wyoming or Nevada? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's Nevada. Yeah, yeah. All you have to do is go visit the largest city in Wyoming, Cheyenne, <laughs> and, and you know there's not a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. So I say it's great if you're trying to save money, but uh, if you ever get challenged, if ever if the if the uh, stuff hits the fan, and you really need to get a good lawyer, you're probably going to have an easier time in Nevada than in Wyoming. Yeah, for sure. So let, let's talk about this whole concept of, of acquisition where you're coming in taking over an, an existing company what what are some of the steps that you believe have to be taken i mean you you first of all in the due diligence if you're going to be looking at uh, acquiring an existing company and then what are some of the first things that you feel like have to be done when you're coming into an existing situation there well okay so that's a super long answer okay um <laughs> Uh, let me give you a short version of the answer. Uh, first of all, looking at possibly acquiring something. So I bought two companies last year. Neither one of them uh, are we going to run as a company. Neither one. They both had assets in there that were useful to us. Hmm. So sometimes you're just looking for another ingredient that you need to to you know for the restaurant. Right for the for the for the the meal you're trying to prepare. So what's another thing that I need, and do I lease it or license it or buy it? Okay, so that can be a reason why I would acquire something. Um, in the incorporation space, the reason I had five and I was adding a sixth was because we there are so many people that want to do business in the United States, and some of them are startups. And some of them are sophisticated and some of them are foreign investors. And what we were trying to do was be able to address a number of different needs in a very specific way. Like one of the companies only serviced primarily um, European companies that were exporting product into the United States. So we had all these people that spoke European languages and work there and they were from Europe and they could really talk to those people versus um, an online company that we had and we just are launching another one that doesn't have any people in it and is just doing down and dirty cheapest way we can offer it services. 
Other people want to talk to somebody, want to have a consultative experience. Other people want strategy. So like at Magnify Your Wealth, I had a whole bunch of people there with a net worth over $100 million. Well, they want, they want to be helped. They want somebody or a group of people to guide them through this territory of, of all these family offices and foundations and, and multi-entity strategies and multiple jurisdictions. You know, so how do you, I, I didn't feel like we could be a one-stop shop for those different people. Mm-hmm. I thought it was better to break it up into something that could uniquely service a client that could be built around the needs of those customers and do a great job with that one thing. I'm a big believer in not trying to be everything to everybody mm-hmm. in one place. I'm not a superstore. Yeah. You know, we're, we, uh, we've had success by remaining kind of a boutique operation that has a lot of technology behind the high touch. That's why you remember Debbie. You remember Debbie because Debbie was good. If she was just some random customer service person, mm-hmm. it would have been a non-issue. She was just a voice on the other end of the phone. Yeah. But Debbie, every everywhere I go, people say, oh, I'm a client of yours. I get this because we have this many clients. We've had hundreds of thousands over the years. Mm-hmm. So I'm your customer. Um, I never have to be afraid when I find out somebody's a customer because I know for sure they were well taken care of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have almost a 90% renewal amongst our clients. Because if you if you figure out what the people want, both the customer and the employee, what do they need? What do they need? What what, what How can I serve them? Um, and we do a great job of taking care of the customer and taking care of the employee. Then you don't have turnover. Then you have... I'm just, I feel like I'm shotgunning you here with yeah. a million little pebbles of stuff. The point is, what, what, let's go back to your question. When I buy a company, I'm looking for what, what, one, I won't even dig into it if there's not some value that I see in me reaching some other goal that I have. Mm-hmm. So I've already got some idea of, I want something else. What is it? Is this thing... Is this asset um, likely to be the piece that I need to springboard forward? So that's the first thing. Um, second thing is, do I have any knowledge? See, like it would be a, I'm not one of these guys who's going to go out and buy gas stations or dry cleaning operations or uh, something else. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a Jamba Juice franchisee. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to be that guy. I know about how to run companies. So everything I'm doing, with one exception, everything I'm doing is somehow connected to running companies Mm -hmm. and building companies. And I may come at it from multiple directions, but it's all inside the wheelhouse of what I know how to do. And so I'm not trying to reinvent myself every three years. I've always been business to business helping your company become more successful through um, foundational pieces. In other words, I'm not teaching marketing or how to write your book or how to do Facebook ads or anything. It's like, how do you own companies? How do you scale companies that make millions of dollars? 
And that's why so many people come and to take this class from me, the Unshackled Owner, the, the smallest company that's in the current class, we have one more week of the class, the smallest company in the class this time is $38 million last year in sales. Wow. Oh, the awesome. largest is just over a hundred million. Hmm. So these are the primarily the people that are coming to say, "I've made money, but the company owns me. I'm a slave to the company." Mm-hmm. Uh, I was listening to Shalene Johnson's interview you guys did. Yeah, and I've uh, I know Brett really better than Shalene, her husband, mm-hmm. but I've spoken at their big events. We've we've worked on a number of little projects together. Um, and they just, it doesn't matter, but we, we've worked together on some things. And um, I listened to her and she said, I don't mind running on fumes. I don't mind being tired. I don't mean, mind putting the hours in. And um, I'm exactly the opposite. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, I'm ex- uh... I, I do mind running on fumes. I, I refuse to be owned by the company. And from my very first company, clear back in 1983, I figured out how to build it so I could get out of it and I could make money from it every day. Laughlin Associates, I haven't walked in the door of the company for over two years. Mm. I haven't visited the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and by the way, and Richie, I'll let you jump in here for a second, but before I forget, one of the nice value adds that you can add then to the unshackled uh, owner in terms of, you know, hey, not only, of course, you're going to get A, B, and C, but as a bonus, we're going to, yes, exactly. We're, we're going to be the farm system for you here for beyond age figure. So you can just kick that in and you can just say as a bonus, you will absolutely positively be guaranteed a spot to join people like, you know, Shalene and me and all these other people who have been on beyond age figures as long as they meet that criteria. So there you go. See, it works. It's a win-win because, you know, finding people who have done more than 10 million that want to come onto a show, it's not always that easy. So now you got a farm, so we got a farm system and you got a bonus. Well, we we'll be delighted to to inter, to introduce you people, just like Scott Carson introduced me to you guys, you guys to us to each other. Yeah. But you know, remember this. I want your listeners to understand this too. According to the most recent statistics, um, in the last census, about 22 million people identified as being a business owner or self-employed, and that could be somebody that's got a little side hustle on Etsy, selling stuff on eBay. It could be um, Tupperware sales or Avon sales or whatever. But in that same report, it showed that only 4% of, of the companies in America break $1 million in revenue. 4%, wow. Only 4%. Wow. The average entrepreneur makes $25,000 a year. Sweet. And the reason is because they're good at doing, <clears throat> they're good at doing something. I mean, go back to the e-myth. They're good at some task. They know how to repair cars or write code or do marketing or mow lawns or whatever, but they don't know how to run a company. They don't know, they have no idea how to run a real business with a payroll, with HR issues, insurance issues, compliance issues, scale issues, financial. They have no concept of this. Mm-hmm. And so they reach the level of their own competency and they get stuck. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's hard to find people to come onto a podcast that have made over $10 million per year or sold mm-hmm. because it's pretty rarefied air, honestly. 
Yeah, but if it's 4% over a million, I wonder what it is over 10. It's got to be like a fraction of 1%, I would think. But, uh, but Rich, you kind of I rudely interrupted no, you no. while I was working on our farm system here. No, so. it's, it's, <laughs> in some ways it was a perfect lead-in to where I was going because we jumped in so deep so quick as we do sometimes into the, some of the nuts and bolts. Um, we forget sometimes how we also talk about how to start we, we we do talk about scaling and exiting, but we're talking about starting. And I know you alluded to LLC and helping someone get started. Uh, a lot of people also have come from our other show, Reinvention Radio, and some of these people are just getting started. And if they're wanting to set it up from the beginning, I don't know. I know just enough to get me in trouble. It's like my Spanish. Um, but is there a reason for an LLC? What about an S-Corp and all these other things? Can we just... The little bit touch, if someone's just starting out, is it always a LLC that someone could should do? or what's No. That? No. Okay, here's the real quick answer on that. I'm not a lawyer or a CPA, by the way, so uh, the best way for me to, to reduce my liability is to say, you probably better cross-check this with somebody else. Um, however, I'm a guy who's been 35 years running real companies with payrolls and and, um, and, of course, one of the leading incorporation companies in the United States. So um, basically, here's if you want to do a really, really simple breakdown of the three most common structures, C-corporation, S-corporation, LLC. See, all corporations start as a C-corporation. Um, so C-corps have the most flexibility because they can have their fiscal year can start and end whenever they want. So you could, if you had multiple companies that were making money, you could have different fiscal years and you can move money between the companies and sometimes sometimes defer taxes for a few years. Um, anybody, basically anybody in the world or any other company or any structure can own shares in C-corporations. Uh, they can have multiple classes of shares, which is why virtually every public company is a C-corporation, mm-hmm. right? You can have... You know, all kinds of flexibility in the shares. It's really designed for people who want to be um, who want to be raising outside equity capital. That's that's the the most uh, typical reason. Or you want to be acquired someday by a public company. So you set up so it's the easiest format to make to make the acquisition happen. That's one. For for an individual, for a m- me or me and my spouse, I'm being very specific, not me and my child, not me and my friend, but me by myself or me and my spouse, typically an S corporation will be the best thing because an S corporation is only going to be owned by human Americans, not by another company, not by your uncle in Canada. It's going to be American humans can own shares in an S-corp and all the gains and losses flow into your Schedule C. So it becomes, you know, you've probably got a couple of rentals and you've got this mom and pop company and maybe one of you is working a W-2 job and it all kind of blends together and the gains and the losses balance themselves out. And there you go. And in an S-corporation, I can be an employee. I can be on pay stubs. I can have the company paying half of my social security and my workman's comp. Whereas if I'm, if I'm a sole proprietor or if I'm a one member LLC, 
um, there's nothing, I can't be an employee. I can only be an owner, which means I have to pay self-employment tax. So, and, and in, an, in an LLC, my spouse and I would be considered one member, not two. So you can't divide up the ownership. It's just part of my home estate. So individual companies, me by myself. So like my real estate investment company and my farm are both S-Corps. And then LLC. So if the three of us were going to go into business together, we would almost certainly form an LLC because tremendously flexible how you divide up the, the membership or the ownership, how you decide to distribute the gains and losses um, or whether or not you will distribute them. It gives you a lot of flexibility. It, there's something called charging order protection that makes it impossible for somebody that wins a judgment against me to come in and become your partner. It's just LLCs, mm -hmm. limited liability companies, were designed to be an upgrade of a general partnership. So they weren't. So a lot of people think, oh, I should form an LLC, but usually a one-person LLC, a one-member LLC, is not the best choice. Hmm. So am I hearing this correct correctly? So we, I uh, said, let's start with we're starting. So you say if someone's just starting, usually if it's just them and their wife, start with the S corp. This yes. reminds me of a friend that does a lot of television and film writing and producing. So he has an S corp for that particular creative stuff, and he also has an S corp for his technology and other things he does. When that S corp for the entertainment space looks like it's going to turn into something. He, he starts it in that, and then he spins out an LLC, like the movie turns into its own LLC, and partners come in, and then later dissolves. Like, I don't know, just enough to get me. So that's a, so, so let me explain why. The reason is because the LLC can hold that one thing, the movie or the script for the movie, or some production, some element of the production of the movie. And, and the, the liability that is associated with that activity stops at the LLC. It can't go up to the S-Corp. But he's still, I wish he was here right now. He's controlling he's it. By the S-Corp. Yeah. Okay. He's controlling it, but he, but it. you spin it off because you want to keep liability separated into different buckets. Mm -hmm. So you don't lose everything if there's a problem. Well, it's interesting because this is something I've been going through myself and mostly sole proprietor. And it's like, there's just way too many things I should have this in another bucket and I was talking to him about it the other day so I was super excited to have you on and I completely understand the asset buying things too and how you could bring it in and why I would want an S-Corp for instance I'm in the e-commerce space and do a lot but sometimes just because I'm in e-commerce I might want to buy a blog because that mm -hmm. blog might be ranking for 17 of the terms that I want and it has nothing to do with e-commerce but there's no asset like that guy's probably barely feeding his family and I can get it for yeah. super cheap, but an S corp, you know, pull that in. It has, I don't have partners or anything like that. And right. So an S corp, it becomes very, very simple and it gives you the greatest. The other thing, one member LLC is what is called in the law, a disregarded entity. So if there's a lawsuit and there's only one member, there's only one person to have liability. So you're not actually limiting your liability. You're, you're taking on all the liability. And you're, 
if the three of us formed an LLC together, there are four different ways we can be taxed. Mm. But if, if I do it by myself, there's only one way, the same as an S-corp passes through. So you can be a one-member LLC, it's okay, but it's not ideal. You have to remember, C-corp, S-corp, LLC, it's like saying, um, um, <clears throat> it's like saying uh, Prius, school bus, dump truck, okay? They'll all move you from your house to the grocery store and back, right? That you can go on vacation in any of them. But which one's really the best for the job? If you're going to haul gravel, dumping it into the hatchback of the Prius is a bad choice. It's not that it won't work. Mm -hmm. It's just not good. Whereas the dump truck is an ideal solution. If you're going to haul a bunch of kids, it's better to have a school bus than put them in the bed of the dump truck. Mm -hmm. Right? It makes sense. So people think one is better or cooler than the other. They're not. It's like... It's like screwdriver, hammer, wrench. Which is the proper thing for the job? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know that. They do something that somebody suggests they should do out of, you know, a willingness to help. And then they go to do their taxes or they go to expand or they go to bring in shareholders or they want to go get some equity financing or something and they run into problems because mm -hmm. they didn't begin with the end in mind. They they didn't think about what they were doing. They just grabbed what they were, they'd heard of before. So I've got a, uh, so a new entity, a new initiative that I'm pursuing. Um, the ultimate goal is uh, to be acquired or potentially to take it public. Um, but certainly there'll be an outside capital raise that'll take place uh, with, with this initiative. It sounds obviously then like a, a C Corp is, is going to be the way to go out of the gate, but is there, or am I, Am I getting no, that you're right. right. Okay. You're, 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 so if, if my intention was to be acquired mm -hmm. um, or to maybe go public and I knew I was going to do outside equity fundraising, mm -hmm. I'm going to sell equity. I'm going to do ap equity. I'm going to capitalize by selling equity in the company. Mm -hmm. I would probably, uh, this, again, this isn't legal advice. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, but I would almost certainly form a C corporation in Delaware because about 70% of public companies are domiciled in Delaware. Mm -hmm. Delaware has legislation that is particularly useful to publicly traded companies. And so, again, the easier you can make the transition, either the acquisition or going public, the better. And because people in Delaware, lawyers uh, in Delaware, other service providers in Delaware's um, uh, are very, very familiar with going public, you don't have to bring somebody new along and pay for their education because you did it in Nebraska or in California mm -hmm. or you did somewhere else that's not known for that. Yeah, Almost every public company is in Delaware. Yeah, so... Um... A lot of ground, obviously, we can cover. And thanks for uh, giving giving what <laughs> Lof, can, I mean, giving what yeah, Lofton like does. We here. haven't really started yet. I yeah, feel like no, we're right? just kind of right. we're just kind of vamping. Yeah. So, but I mean, given what Laughlin does, I mean, obviously, this is a conversation that is near and dear to anyone's heart who's thinking about starting or, or, or scaling a business and, and how to make that happen. So, it, definitely ground well covered. And I'm glad that I mean, I'm glad that we did. I, I just I don't want to gloss over this either, though, because earlier on in the conversation. 
you mentioned that you had uh, an exit through it wasn't your own company, but evidently you had, you had invested in a company that had an exit. Is that did I hear you correctly? No. I, no I, here's the sad story. Here's a sad story. Uh, I, my third or fourth company did re I mean, I had several companies in a row that just did better and better. And then in the mid eighties, I got into the cellular phone space, uh, which was early in cellular and I built it up. We had multiple locations. We had a big facility of insulation facility. Um, we had sub agents underneath us. We were killing it. I was in my twenties and, um, the industry all shifted in one day, one meeting just changed. Hmm. They changed all the rules. They said effective right now, your commissions, your co-op advertising, uh, how we pay, how often we pay, everything changes today. All the smart people got out. I was inexperienced enough that I stayed in mm -hmm. and ran myself deeply into business and then personal debt till I was close to half a million dollars in debt. Uh, and uh, and I, anyway, I declared bankruptcy mm -hmm. in 91. Um, I, but I'd been in the newspaper, on TV, on the radio a lot, you know, advertising. And so a fellow that I knew casually who went to the same, um, not the same congregation. I grew up in the Mormon church. And so this guy was a Mormon. I was a Mormon. And um, he was a leader. He was older than me. And he asked me out to lunch one day. And I just knew he had a really nice new Suburban, which at the moment seemed really good to me because we'd had to take our new cars and turn them in. Uh, and so we go to lunch. And it was a nice, you know, kind of an expensive lunch. And near the end of it, he says, so what are you going to do now? You know, would you, would you consider having a job? And of course, all my fear went through me because I'd never had a job. Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't have an education. I'd gone to one year of junior college. I don't even think I got grades that year. I think I, I was in their show choir and we were traveling around the U.S. and Canada the whole year. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know if I ever took a test or anything. It was, I was mostly chasing girls and singing. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, I, I'm probably not qualified for a job. What would the job be? Well, he said, well, you know, we have um, 350 offices around the world, and um, we're the leader in our industry, and I'm looking for a vice president of sales. And I know that you know how to sell stuff, and I know you can do it through multiple stores. I don't know if you can do it through 350 offices, but uh, we'd like to do that. So I came on as their VP of sales and started working with people globally and um during the time I was there, as we were growing the revenue, uh, we took the company public on NASDAQ. And, um, and so I was an officer all during that time of going through preparation, going through the launch, going through the quiet period. Um, and then I'd been there about three and a half years, and he, I was walking across the sky bridge from the elevator over to the office, and I could see the CEO walking in from the parking lot. And I jumped back in the elevator and went back down and met him in the, in the lobby. So let's go to breakfast. He said, what's up? And I said, I need to talk to you. Now, I hadn't come to work with this on my mind at all. Hmm. I went to breakfast and I said, I want to give you my notice. And he said, well, what's the matter? 
And I said, because we were killing it. We'd almost quadrupled sales over those years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really had grown. And, and consequently, the stock price had gone way up. So I'm at the center of this growth, right? Um, what's the matter? Is it money? Did somebody say something? Is there a problem? No, no, no. I said, and I rem- I'll never forget it because it's so freaking cliche now. It's so cliche as an entrepreneurism. But I said, you know, Mike, this is my dream or your dream, not my dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I'll, I'll stick around for as long as you need me to find somebody else, but I need to move on. And I knew I, I had enough runway uh, with the stock that I was in good shape financially. So when I left there in the fall of 96, started in the spring of 93 through the fall, I think it was November of 96. And, um, we just started buying companies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I started doing. So, um, this doesn't sound like a horrible story. <laughs> so, what, uh, no. so wait. So, what am I missing here? What was it? What was the name of that company? What, what, which one was that? That company was called um, Itex. Itex. Itex okay. International Trade Exchange. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. were you fully vested when you left? I mean, oh yeah, so oh yeah, were- yeah, yeah, oh yeah. No, I walked away with everything that I'd earned. Oh, well, then good. That's a great story. Yeah, no, so, I think he was talking. The sad story was crashing the other one into the dirt. Yeah, that was the first part of it before he went to lunch or breakfast with the guy. The, the, yeah, the, uh, sad, the cell phone the, company. Yeah, I got you. Okay. It, <laughs> so, many good, so many good things come out of yeah. tragic experiences. I'm sure it's a theme on the show. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, two of my greatest growth spurts mm-hmm. happened after the two most terrible things the bankruptcy, the, the loss of that. I, I didn't lose it. I killed it. Mm-hmm. I murdered that company. Mm-hmm. I, I was completely my fault, right? I mean, I, I say I lost it, but I didn't lose it. I killed it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and then the other time, and uh, <laughs> this may be a bomb all of a sudden, but the second time was um, uh, I went through a big battle with the government over somebody we'd done business with, had nothing to do with my companies. It was something about this other company that had been a vendor to us, or we'd been a vendor to them. Mm-hmm. And um, I got sucked into their big IRS battle. And after $2 million in legal fees and three and a half years fighting, I just settled and took a plea bargain and went to federal prison for 18 months sentence. Seriously? So, oh, yeah. Oh, it was horrible. It was terrible. And the only thing they said was, we, they said, we know you don't think you did anything wrong. We believe you did technically did something wrong. What do they think you technically did wrong? Well, the charge was conspiracy. And they explained in a conspiracy, doesn't matter how big the conspiracy is, only one person has to know there's any criminal activity. Mm-hmm. And that in this case, it was tax evasion. And it wasn't even his tax evasion. They said he was helping other people evade taxes. But because we formed some corporations for them, they said that was part of the conspiracy. Yikes. So what good came out of that one? <laughs> well, you know what? My number one, I, I get paid $25,000 a speech. Mm. My number one requested speech is things I wish I'd known before I went to federal prison. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and again, going back to the theme of building businesses that run. So I was, I was mentally I was out of pocket for a, several years, but I was completely out of pocket for, I was in the prison for 14 months in one week 
and then five more weeks of halfway house. So call it 16, 15 and a half, 16 months. But let's just, let's just say 14 months in one week of being in. Mm-hmm. Couldn't, no, couldn't have a phone call, couldn't look at an email, couldn't review a report, couldn't give any direction, couldn't do anything at all to run the companies. And still, my take-home pay that year was $974,000. Wow. And so I'll tell you, that is a business that runs when you're not there. Mm-hmm. You, you see what I mean? Yes. Yep. And that's always been my vision of everything I've done. How do we build it so I can either sell it or I can own it without having to operate it? Yeah, so totally I, I love people that work their asses off. I think it's great. I, I think they're wonderful. I celebrate them. I respect them. I just don't want to join their club. You just want them to work for you. <laughs> no, I want them. No, I want any of these people that work really hard and slave, 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 and think that's the way it is. I think it's terrific. I have no problem with it. I didn't know until four years ago that everybody wasn't doing it the way I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, four years. Well, this is April. Well, I don't know when this will air, but four years ago in April, it's April right now as we record this. I was, in, I was invited to be the opening keynote speaker for something called the Exit Planning Institute. Hmm. These are lawyers and CPAs who are focused on helping privately owned companies either get passed down to the next generation or get sold. And, and their sweet spot is between 20 and $100 million. Mm-hmm. So here I am with 500 lawyers and CPAs who specialize in exit planning and they, I'm the opening, I have a 90-minute talk and a 90-minute work, uh, full group workshop. Wow. And I, I said to these guys that were inviting me to come speak, I said, why me, though? You've got all these people who specialize. Why do you want me? They said, because you actually buy and sell companies. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not the lawyer dotting the I's. You're actually the owner who's either selling or buying. Mm-hmm. And so in trying to design a talk for these people, I had to boil down what are the things that I've done every time. And it, and I realized there's, it's always the same uh, formula. It's always the same recipe. Mm-hmm. And so I taught it to them. And again, you have to understand, I went to one year of a Mormon junior college in Rexburg, Idaho, called Rick's College, like Bob's you know, dry cleaning or something, Rick's college. And uh, no, I didn't learn any of this. I mean, it, I don't know how, I don't know how it happened. Yeah. But we figured it out from the time I was 19 years old, but. So you can't just gloss realized, over that though. You, you know, you, 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 yeah, no, no, no. You, we can't just gloss over that. So the high level overview of the things that you realize that you're doing like in, in, in two minutes or less, like what, what is that? Ask the question a different way. I don't so, understand what you're asking. The, so in the presentation, you realize you boiled down your process into oh, this 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 step by step process, steps. right? So yeah. So what like a yeah. high level overview? Of what those steps are? What are they? Vision. Where, now, when I say vision, I don't mean how would you love your life to be. I'm you know oh I'm retired on a beach in Bali. No, no. I'm saying what if you're going into this exercise of this business. What, why are you doing it? What's the exact 
outcome that you want? What's the finish line look like? And let's get explicit about the finish line. Mm. Okay, so the first one is, why are you doing it? Where, Where are we going? And let's define it. Second thing is, what are you great at and what do you suck at? So where are you going to focus your time and admit from the beginning what you don't know? So I suck at accounting. I suck at IT. I suck at any kind of project management. I'm horrible at it. I'm terrible. Mm -hmm. So just get over it and don't try to learn it. Don't say, I'm super smart. I can figure this out. Mm -hmm. I, I look at guys like Mark Cuban who are willing to eat the ketchup packages, right, from McDonald's live low and hire people and pay them to do things that you're not really good at. And you live low for a while and spend the money on building your team. So week number two or step number two is figure out what you're great at and where you're weak. And then, and then build an organizational chart. Most people's org charts are historic. This this is how we are. Not what, not like a team roster that says we need a quarterback, we need a center, we need a running back, we need a receiver. In order to hit the vision, what does the company have to look like at the point where we're hitting the goal? Hmm. And then you use your organizational chart to figure out who do we bring in next? What's the next most important thing to do? So that's step number two. Number three is build job descriptions that cover everything that it, because when you write a really good job description as an owner or as whomever's tasked with writing it, you have to figure out not just what task you want done, but the outcome that you want. Mm-hmm. And so to get the, I'm not just hiring somebody to sell my widgets. I want to sell this many of these widgets into this market during this time period, right? That's the outcome. Yeah. So if I'm writing a good job description, what, what systems have to be in place? What leads have to be there? What's it going to cost to find it? If this person is successful, what are we going to have to be prepared to do to let them be successful? Most of the time we hire somebody because we suck at doing something. And so we say, oh, you're good at that. I'll hire you. And I'm just going to throw you into the lion's den mm-hmm. and say, good luck. And then when you don't meet my fantasy version of what you should have done, I fire you. Mm. But usually, usually entrepreneurs are the worst people to have employees. They usually suck as leaders because they're visionaries. They're not detailed people. Yep, I get that. And so anyway, that's three. Number four is building scoreboards so that everybody from the chairman of the board down to the receptionist knows if they're winning or losing every single day. Mm. We've got to keep score mm-hmm. in a very visual way. Number five, see, once you have a vision – and you've explained the jobs, you've hired people, and you're keeping score. Now you need something to hold that. And the thing you hold it in, the glue that holds it together is your corporate culture, which mostly happens by accident or default. But when we when we organize a corporate culture based on intention, here's what we stand for. Here's what we stand against. Here's our values. Here's who we are as a group. Here's what we are not. Here's what we will not ever do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, it's easy to build a, a culture, and if you can believe it and you can get your management team to buy off, then usually within 90 to 120 days, you get the employees to believe it. And then if you're consistent, 
which is the place where almost everybody drops the ball. Mm -hmm. If you stay consistent and this, you, it's not like, oh, the boss just read a new book. So we have this new initiative. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, no. If we say anything that's external can be additive, we can study it. We can say, what do we want to get out of this? But our culture stays consistent. Mm -hmm. So then after a while, the culture isn't dependent on the owner being there anymore. Yeah. The culture, look at Walt Disney, who's been dead over 50 years, and they still are following basically the same culture. What would Walt do? Yep. Right? Yep. So you build a culture. Week number six is understanding your financials. Even people doing 20, 30, 40 million dollars often don't understand their balance sheet, don't truly understand a statement of cash flow. Um, you also need to understand at least two versions of your PL, sometimes three versions, but at mm -hmm. least two. Because P&Ls are, are a work of fantasy for the most part. Mm -hmm. And because um, uh, how many times have you had a, a very positive black bottom line and no money in the bank? Sure. I'm profitable, but I'm broke. Yeah. So clearly you can't use that as your, as your GPS. Yep. Uh, and then week number seven is about empowering your management team and developing small dashboards of key performance indicators, the vital statistics or the, the, you know, it's like your blood pressure, pulse, blood oxygen, like you'd have in the hospital. Yeah. Are we healthy or unhealthy? When yeah. you get those seven pieces in place, you got You can business. extricate yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! All right, look, we're gonna have to jump here as much as we'd love to keep you all day, uh, and, <laughs> and believe me, we would. Um, if people want more information about you, Aaron, where where are some of the best places for them to go? Well, if they want to. Talk about incorporation and corporate compliance, yeah. uh, which almost nobody's doing, by the way. That's what Debbie Cook was doing with you guys, the, the minutes, resolutions, meetings that most people don't do, yeah. and they don't realize they're breaking the law and they're at risk. Yep. Go to LaughlinUSA.com. Okay. Or if you want to learn about me, about becoming an unshackled owner, or about any things I do, go to AaronScottYoung.com. Yeah, A-A-R-O-N-S-C-O-T-T-Y-O-U-N-G.com. Man, Really appreciate your time today. I know we covered uh, a lot of ground here, and Lord knows we could have gone uh, much further down a whole bunch of rabbit holes here. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll let you jump. We're just man, so honored that you just just chose to join us here on Beyond Eight Figures. And for Richie Ote and Mary Mary Goulet, will be back next week. And thank you very much to Aaron Scott Young. We'll talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody. <laughs>